When you really break it down, we're always evaluating ourselves and our prayer and our spiritual life and our practices. And how did I do at that? And how much did I get out of that Bible passage? Or, you know, how, how, how much of a connection did I have with God? And contemplative prayer gently allows us to let go of all of that so that God can meet us on God's own terms. If you want to read more books and you want to be in a book club, but you don't have time to do either, even though you're in quarantine, welcome to A Place for You. It's the 30-second book club podcast. And uh, this week, Steve Weens is hanging out in the podcast uh, with his book, Shining Like the Sun, Seven Mindful Practices for Rekindling Your Faith. And Steve, I really feel like this book that just came out was meant for a time like this. Well, I think it's a really we're living in a really unique moment, at least in most of our lifetimes. We've never we've never experienced anything like this. And I think most of what I'm hearing from people is fear and a need for (laughs) some certainty, you know, Mm -hmm. a need to know, like, when is this going to end? When are we going to get back to normal? And what I would have to say about that is that um, these moments that we, it's so rare that we actually find ourselves in what the scriptures would call a wilderness moment. Um, most of our wilderness moments are manufactured, you know, like the season of Lent. We know when it starts, we know when it's going to end, and we give up something so that we can sort of experience wilderness. But this is really a wilderness moment. Because we know when it started, but we don't know when it will end and we don't know how it will end. And so the wilderness in the scriptures, it's so fascinating. The Hebrew word for wilderness is uh, lodibar, and it comes from a root word deber, which means to speak. So in the, in the wilderness in the scriptures, that's when God speaks. That's when God shows up. And, you know, I don't, in any way believe that God caused this pandemic to happen or that it was planned in any way. But I do believe God reacts to us and God cares for us in it. And God will speak to us in it. If we can lean into (laughs) the, the reality of this is just what we're in right now and we can't control it and we can't bring it to an end. um, But we can find God within it if we submit to the reality of what it is, which is it's true wilderness. Like we, we know where, where we've been, but we don't know where we've going, where we're going. And that's a moment where faith is expanded, you know, in its truest sense, faith is believing when you don't know the outcome. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know if that's encouraging or not. (laughs) (laughs) for me it is but um but it's a way of embracing reality and finding god within it awesome well so let's just start here as we as we jump into this book i mean we we know that god nothing is a surprise to god god has a plan i mean do you really feel i feel like this as i was reading this book what a great time for this book just to be released talking about you know mindful practices finding stillness in a busy world and reconnecting with god well, God's kind of unbusied a lot of our lives now. <laughs> yes, that, I love that, Andrew. What a great quote. God has kind of unbusied our lives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. And just as a person, a human being and a pastor, I don't know that many of us have settled into that reality in any real way, meaning we're many of us are still riddled with anxiety about when is this going to end and what's going to happen. 
But mindfulness calls us really to return to right now, return to what's real right now. And so this morning I had started working down in my basement office and my son is going through uh, a book club on old yeller, you know, the great old book, uh, old yeller. And he needed some help um, printing out some pictures to do a collage for a zoom call that he's going to be on later. Right. <laughs> We're in such a weird, bizarre reality, you know, like I'm helping my son get, get ready for a zoom call about this online book club that he's in, which never would have happened, you know, two months ago or three months ago, I guess. And I can get mad about that. I can get, you know, frustrated because I'm distracted. I've started my work day and, or I can lean into what does it mean to embrace this new reality where I really do have more time and where I really do, I really can connect with my kids here at home. Um, you know, do you know what I mean by that, Andrew? Like I, we, it is less busy, but in our minds, we can clutter it up with so much, um, worry and fake pressure to keep working or something like that, that I think we can really miss the actual moment that we find ourselves in. And it is terrifying, but there's also some hidden gifts if we can wake up to seeing what they are. I, I absolutely agree. And because I think at least for myself, I don't like to have idle moments where I'm forced to think about things that are, um, more important than what am I doing in the next five minutes? <laughs> you know, right, what does eternity look like? You know, accepting right. what that is and everything like that. And that's why I love your book because it's all about just finding those mindful practices where you have to slow down and open up your mind and heart to what God is doing. Yeah. So let's just jump right to this because I think, again, as you were saying there, talking about returning to here. Yeah. It's so important, but it's, you know, for me, I, I had to reread it over and over again, that beginning part, because it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of a foreign concept too, to a lot of people. Yeah. So, well, I mean, let's, let's even just, just get a working definition of mindfulness and there's many ones, many definitions maybe out there, but how I'm using it is simply um, the practice of noticing when you are not present to yourself, to God, to the person across the table or Zoom call with you, and then gently returning to that moment. Um, and so that's why we do meditation. You know, we sit in silence for 10 minutes. We set our iPhone timer and we set it for 10 minutes. And we sit in silence. And the point is to sit in silence for 10 minutes. You know, <laughs> And then before you know it, you're thinking about the Zoom call that's coming up on KTIS and what am I going to say and am I going to be... <laughs> intelligent and, uh, you know, and, Oh, I uh, know well, I'm supposed to be sitting in silence. And the reason why we do that for 10 minutes a day, if we do that is, is, is not so that we have some magical mystical experience with God in those 10 minutes. It's not that we, you know, learn to be woo woo and Zen like it's so that during the rest of our lives, we're more and more able to recognize, Oh, wait a minute. I've left, I've left the moment. I'm not present with my child, with my spouse, with God. I'm somewhere else, but I can gently return to here. And so returning to here, and I believe, like we can say God is outside of time. And I, I believe that that's true, that God is not bound or constrained by time. But it certainly seems to be true 
that the only moment that God can truly really be found is right now. Hmm. Um, I, I, I think that's where God meets us. I think when God meets us, it's when we come present to any moment that we're in. If we're afraid, if we're celebrating, if we're nervous, if we're excited, coming present to right now is where we'll find God. And that's really what my book is all about. Seven different practices to help us return to here where we'll find God eternally waiting for us with love. And they're all fantastic, by the way. Uh, the book is called Shining Like the Sun. We're just going to try to dig into a few of the ones that um, that uh, that really spoke to me here and that I highlighted. And, and let's start here because in your practice too, you talk about ordinariness and noticing without judging. And boy... I think, yeah. again, especially now, and I'll tell you what, I've noticed it now more than ever, whenever in this quarantine, this coronavirus time, whenever I'm out and about and I see somebody and something just looks a little off, I'm judging them. Like if I see two people oh, together, yeah. I think, okay, are they, are they in the same household? Are they sheltering in place together? So that's okay. Or are they, you know, are they wearing 100%. their mask correctly? hundred <laughs> you know? percent. And you, so 100%. You, you say in the book, you know, if you can simply notice when you're following a script and refrain from judging yourself, you're already breaking character. And halfway down the plank, talk about a little bit more about, you know, what that plank is and, and how we notice without judging. When we live just in our minds and mindfulness is really sort of a weird concept because it's really about getting out of your mind <laughs> really is what it is. But so our, our minds are literally wired up to judge, to navigate right from wrong, to separate safe from dangerous. I mean, there's still a prehistoric part of our brains that is still wired up to run from the saber toothed tiger who's <laughs> going to bear down on us around the corner. Cause that's where he lives, you know? And so we are wired up to, in a very unconscious way. Our, our, our minds when it's doing its job um, it is really wired up to judge. And so to notice without judging, I'll give you an example. So I'm 49 and I have this joke with my friends, like up until about age, like between ages 35 to 45, I looked 35, you know, I was, <laughs> I was a certain weight. <laughs> my hair was a certain length <laughs> of recession. Um, the wrinkles were, were where there should be or, you know, but then about at 45, I, I joke all of a sudden I, now I look 55, <laughs> you know? And so <laughs> I'm carrying about 20 more pounds. Um, I just noticed my face looks different. My neck has more thickness to it. My waist has more thickness. And I was talking to my wife about this yesterday and I was really saying that I judge that so much. Like I, and I'm still very active. I'm still, you know, exercising every day and all that stuff. I eat okay. It's not perfect. But um, so my point is I'm not doing anything very much differently other than getting older, but there is a thing in our culture around weight I mean, let's just be really honest that we automatically judge not whether, you know, not, and it's not even so much like, are they good looking or not good looking? It's, are they a good person or a lazy person? Um, and so I noticed I was judging myself on that, you know, um, and note, but noticing without judging is getting to that place where you get curious about, oh, I'm, 
I'm practicing some, some shame here. I'm, I'm like digging into shame. Why am I treating my body that way? You know, why am I, or maybe if like, I, I talk to a lot of people right now who are less productive than they want to be or thought they would be during the coronavirus. You know, they just have less energy and oh, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just get back to work? No, 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 no. Like I'm not as productive. Noticing without judging is about getting curious about why you're having those feelings. And so you're out for a walk. You see two people, two teenagers that are all over each other. You know, they don't, you know, they're hopefully they're not brother, sister. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> so, you know, they don't live together and you're like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? Noticing without judging is about getting curious about even why you have such a strong reaction in the first place, you know? And just getting curious about that. Oh, well, actually, I do care about the spread of the virus. So I don't want people to, you know, not practice social distancing. Well, that's curious, uh, you know, but anyway, this goes on and on and on social media. I mean, just get on Twitter for four seconds and notice without judging what your reactions are to the different tweets and retweets and who says what, you know, <laughs> um, and the point with this, the point of noticing without judging is again, to get out of that reactive mind in this. I think it's in this chapter. I talk about reactive versus receptive mind. The reactive mind is always judging because that's what it does. The receptive mind gets curious. Why am I feeling this way? Why am, why are my senses all heightened right now? Why am I angry right now? Why? Like I, 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 whenever I get, more mad than I feel like I should I, at, at home. I call it having a level 10 reaction to a level two infraction. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Why am I so angry? And there's a reason. Uh, I don't know what that reason is unless I, unless I take the time to get curious about it. All right. So let's jump to uh, practice number three, simplicity. And you know, you, you touched on a little bit. We, we might be frustrated that we're a little less productive now, Mm-hmm. And that might be because, all right, my hands up on this one too. I've been wa- been watching a lot of things online <laughs> instead yep, of yep, doing other yep. things. And you talk about one of the practices you can have about being mindful is saying no to wasted time. Well, I have a friend that, and I actually write about this friend named Nick in the book. And I was having lunch with him. He works downtown. This was last year, maybe even 18 months ago, but we're having lunch at Whole Foods downtown, Minneapolis. And he sits down and he just has a sparkle in his eyes. And Nick is, he invents stuff all the time. (laughs) Like he, he invented anyway, this ice cube machine to make ice cubes that are completely clear. Like they have no fog and whatever. (laughs) He's he's so, that's just what he does. He, he he invented a rudimentary printing press. He, he made a, like a tabletop video game. He's just really creative. And he's father of two very precocious kids and he has a full-time job and a marriage. So, so I began to ask him like, where do you find the time to do all this stuff? And he goes, well, I decided recently to change my cell phone plan to where I'm actually, I'm actually charged by the text and by the minute. And so I, I'm more mindful about how I use it. So I use my phone a whole lot less. And because I just noticed, he said, now I still need a phone for different, a a smartphone for work and for different things. But 
I was finding I was on it so much. I was wasting all this time. Everyone has the same amount of time, he says. But um, he said, like, I even had to learn how to navigate without GPS. You know, <laughs> I had to add because he's not using GPS on his phone when he drives from here to there. And so he said, you know, I actually had to start asking people for directions and they would look at you like you're crazy. You know, like, <laughs> well, just look, you just look it up on your phone. Like, well, I don't, I don't use GPS on my phone. Um, so he, you know, he would be late here and there, but his point was because I want to spend time doing the things I love doing, creating, inventing, he's a great cook. And like, we've hired him to do, um, dinners for our church staff, you know, and they're just fabulous. They're unbelievable. And he loves doing that kind of thing, but he's just realized I can't do the things I love to do unless I give some really tangible no's. Um, so phone is a certain, you know, like less time, less screen time is an obvious one, but what are the things that you think you have to do that maybe you don't have to do? This is what simplicity is asking, you know, and when I write about simplicity, it's, it's really less, I mean, it can include decluttering, but it's really less about decluttering and it's more about making decisions about, about what's really important to you and not letting the autopilot of, well, everybody does that. So I guess I got to do that too, um, to run your life. Like your yes and your no needs to run your life. Uh, and that takes courage in, in today's day and age. You know, mm-hmm. I have three kids, you know, so cello practice, harp practice, soccer practice. I mean, there's all these things that, that demand our time. And, um, what are we going to, what are we going to say yes to? And even with our kids, you know, those of us that are parents, how are we training our kids to learn to give mindful yeses and mindful no's, you know, instead of just, just, just swimming along the current of busy, Hmm. like there, there, there is an option there and we need to reclaim that. Talking with Steve Weens, uh, shining like the sun. Let's jump to practice five. And this is, I read this and I thought, man, this is, if everyone could, everyone in the world could read one chapter and one section of it, this, this would change everything. The practice wow. to learn to ask better questions. First off, let's have better conversations because right now, if anyone disagrees with you, uh, they are now the, they're the antichrist oh, yeah. pretty much, right? Yes. <laughs> it's like, 100%. You don't like the same flavor of ketchup? Okay, you are. <laughs> We're going to war. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. <laughs> Send the nukes. I know. And I know. so I, I loved how you talked about, you know, one of the ways to be more mindful and how to have better conversations is to learn how to ask better questions. How do we do that? When somebody asks you a question, that you can tell is they want you to give a yes or no black or white in or out question designed for them to sort of figure out what, what side you're on, on any issue, politics, you know, spirituality. Um, There's a way of, of asking for a better question. And I write about this in the book. So this concept comes from, this book that I went through when I was in college, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And the author, Robert Persig brings up this Japanese word and it's mu M U. And essentially it's hard to describe, but essentially it's, it, 
is what you say when you are confronted with a dualistic question designed to make you defend your position versus learn something more where you would say, moo, you know, can I have, can I have a better, can I have a better question? Um, I, I, so an example of this is uh, several years ago, I got into a heated exchange with someone on Facebook, which is the best place to have conversations, yes. right? I mean, it's, it's absolutely the best place to have conversations. And, and I, I had actually recently sort of made a little decision to be a little less um, unopinionated on Facebook. And I know that sounds weird. Usually like that's where you should go, but I was just noticing I was just being way too, honestly, way too unopinionated, way too soft. But I, but I swung, I swung the, <laughs> pendulum out a little too far. And I was going back and forth with this one person. And then this other, uh, one of our mutual friends jumps in and says, Hey, how about the three of us get together and and actually talk about this? And I was like, no, I mean, I I had no interest in that. No way. Um, But then about 24 hours later, I'm like, you know, this is not, this is not the person I want to be, you know? So I reached out and said, yeah, let, let's do it. Now, the, the third person never showed up, which was hilarious, <laughs> but we ended up sitting down and having a face-to-face long face-to-face conversation. And here's what happened, Andrew. I learned about his history. I learned about his family. I learned about his pain. He became a human being to me and not just one of them that mm-hmm. believes the other perspective. And guess what? We did not leave that table agreeing about politics or spirituality. We, we still to this day have major differences. However, we did leave that table honestly and truly being friends and encountering each other as human beings, right? So how do we have better conversations? In part, we have to learn how to suspend that one feeling we have whenever we encounter someone that we disagree with when our instinct is to defend and to be right, to defend our right to be right. We actually, I, I'm going to say this as Christ followers, if, you know, if I want to like pound that, you know, Mm -hmm. stake in the ground, one of the, one of the most spiritually mature things we can do to love the people that are in our lives is to give up the right to be right. It, it leads us nowhere. It leads us nowhere. It doesn't lead us to love our enemies. It doesn't lead us to love our families. It only leads us to have bigger and bigger egos. Um, and this is a hard one. This is a really hard one for me, for sure. You know, um, and I don't think that means giving up any convictions. I just think that means noticing when you become defensive, you got to ask yourself the question, what am I defending here? You know, like, what am I actually defending? And I think if you get curious about that one, um, you know, it, that might lead to some moments of liberation and embarrassment. (laughs) Um, I'm defending my right to simply be right, even if I am or not. And the reality is like, who of us could claim to really be right about anything, (laughs) you know, like, cause intelligent people, fall on different sides of the spectrum in terms of spirituality, politics, whatever. And who's right? 
And is that the, is that the big, like, do you want to spend your life defending yourself? What a boring life, you know, really what a boring life. I just am so much more interested in learning from people who are different than me. And then not claiming we're the same, but learning from people. If, if I can't learn from someone who's different from me, then I have a pretty small perspective. I think that ties in perfectly as we jump uh, to practice seven restoration. And one of the things to do is to welcome weakness and fragility in ourselves to have yeah. that feeling of, okay, I don't have to be right. And now, boy, there's some things that maybe I need to work on. How do we do that? Maybe without being toxic to ourselves too, right? I mean, yeah. Except the fragility, well, that, but not hate on ourselves or something like that. Andrew, that's a really good distinction. So when we talk about embracing the weakness, fragility, and loneliness in ourselves, we are not talking about self-hatred. We're actually talking about self-compassion um, because when we face typically, typically when we face those things about us, honestly, and they end up being less than we wanted them to be. Um, these are the weak parts of us. These are the parts that aren't, you know, changed, transformed. These are the real parts of us that haven't received the Instagram filter yet. You know, when we come <laughs> face to face with a stark reality of who we actually can be at times. Um, typically we're so disgusted by ourselves in that moment that we actually punish that side of ourselves. We actually try to hide it. We punish it. We, we try to hide it. Um, and I think what the gospel means, if it means anything, it means that we don't have to hide those places that we have a God that receives us as we are, that um, has done the work of reconciliation to accept us as we are. So we don't have to hide uh, our true selves. We don't have to hide those painful parts of ourselves. I write about the story of the parable, the parable of the prodigal son, which, you know, most people are going to recognize, but it's the, it's really a story of a father and two sons. And this is, this is a parable. So lots of layers, but you know, um, we tend to celebrate the younger son and we tend to get a little, you know, we don't want to really want to be the older son because <laughs> he's <laughs> sort of a self-righteous <laughs> so-and-so. And we end up losing the plot that, you know, first century, if this like first century listeners in the Middle East, family honor is number one, right? Like family honor code and honor, the system of honor and, and shame is the biggest, biggest uh, reputation stealer or enhancer of all time. So if this story had actually happened, this father would have been, the father would have been outcast by his community because he allowed shame to come on the family by letting the younger son go in the first place, but then especially by letting him return and by giving him the status of, you know, prince essentially that father would not have been looked on as the magnanimous king that everyone loved. He would have been looked on 
as a weak fool. And that's, I think, why the older son has such contempt for him, because he's, he's brought dishonor to the family. And when the father says to the older son, son, all I have, you are always with me and all I have is yours. And then the story just ends, you know, like the, the, the scene fades to black and we don't know how the older son responds, but he's having to deal with facing his own, his own weakness. And if God is supposed to be like the father in this story, then God is the most vulnerable being in the universe. You know, if God is love, love is vulnerable. Love is weak. We don't like to think about that in terms of God, but God is willing to be vulnerable in order to show love to both sons. And that's, that's powerful. And I think, you know, there's this verse somewhere in the Bible that says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So it's not God shaking God's fist that it's not, it's not fear. It's not wrath. It's God's kindness that leads us to turning back and having our hearts broken, but not flagellating ourselves um, by actually embracing the weakness so that it can be accepted and transformed, you know, and if we can't accept the weakness in ourselves, we'll never be able to accept the weakness in somebody else. You know, we'll always, we'll punish it too. And we'll try to hide it too. Um, you know, that's why if, if you've ever been in the, one of those really low moments and you express what's honest rather than what's proper, have you ever gotten the Christian response like, well, you know, God's in charge and God, you know, God has a plan for all things. And, and really what that can sound like, no matter what the intent, what that can sound like is shut up, stop talking. You're making me uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and I don't want to hear it, you know, rather than, oh, I'm so sorry. You're so low. Tell me more responding with a glib cliche answer to someone's deep, deep pain is not Christ-like. I don't think. Um, now that sounds judgmental. <laughs> I realize. So I'm sorry, but there you have it. Uh, one more question with you, Steve here. I, I realized I, I passed over this and I thought, man, I think this would be good. Just a, a practical, a little more practical. We know a lot of big ideas here, but I always like to have, and I need this. I shouldn't yeah. say it's not just for the people listening, but it's for me more. I need like practical, okay, this is what you do X, Y, and Z, <laughs> yep, <laughs> right? Yep, yep, and yep. so I love, uh, you talk about at the beginning, you know, of, of, of being attentive and then contemplative prayer. So can you just go through a little bit what contemplative prayer looks like? Because I, one time about a year ago, I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a better job of trying to pray. So I would set a timer before I went to bed and I would try to pray for five minutes and that felt like an hour. And sometimes oh, yeah. I did, I didn't even get there. And yeah. you just talk about, you know, how, uh, how to have that contemplating centering prayer when, when you don't know how you can pray for a few minutes and, and, and when you get distracted and, and everything like that. Yeah. So prayer is such a beautiful thing and we need to, we need to see prayer with as many layers as, as possible, you know, so prayer is certainly many, many more things than just one thing. And my, my guess is most listeners grew up the way and are still in the way I grew up. And that is praying is um, either formulaic, you know, that there's a certain formula, like I grew up with the ACTS formula, like 
first of all, start with adoration. God, you're so good. God, thank you so much. And then go to confession, see, you know, I confess my sins and then go to T thankfulness. God, I thank you for my family, blah, blah. And then go to S supplication. Uh, I pray for Andrew and, you know, (laughs) in his life and, um, and, or it's just pouring your heart out to God spontaneously, uh, you know, or it's prayer journaling. And it is all those things that, that, that certainly is prayer, but, but that's one layer of prayer. And over the course, I've, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've been a Christian for my whole life. Um, and I have come across enough people that have said what I'm about to say regarding prayer and have experienced it in my own life enough to know that it's true that most Christians get to a point in their life when they kind of run out of words in, in prayer and prayer itself feels like a burden Um, coming up with spontaneous words to pray to God feels like a burden. It didn't start that way, but now it does. And what I say to those people is congratulations. You've graduated. (laughs) And I actually say that, and that, that doesn't mean you've gotten better than anyone else. It just means that you are a human being that has gotten to know God more than you used to. And so now what used to work, you know, this formulaic prayers or spontaneous prayers. Now you need to connect with God in a different way. And so I try to introduce people to contemplative prayer, which is a way of praying without words. And so you may set a timer for 10 minutes. The point is not to get through the 10 minutes without getting distracted. (laughs) That's not the point. The point is not to get it right. The point is not to have some mystical experience with God, unless you do. The point is to simply create a space, a regular space where God might uh, meet you with love in the way that God will choose to meet you. And so um, someone may set a timer for 10 minutes, close their eyes. They may picture a candle. They may actually light a candle. They may have a cross in their hands that they just, that they actually hold and touch for 10 minutes. They may have a a breath prayer that they pray on the in breath, like, um, you know, um, God is very fond of me, you know? Um, And the point with contemplative prayer is to begin to actually release control of prayer. Because when, when we're saying all the words, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. And we are controlling it. And so contemplative prayer begins to give the control back to God where God can meet us the way God wants to meet us. And we release some expectations and we release the outcome and we release our own performance. And let me tell you, like, like, right. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you really break it down, we're always evaluating ourselves and our prayer and our spiritual life and our practices. And how did I do at that? And how much did I get out of that Bible passage or, you know, how, how, how much of a connection did I have with God and contemplative prayer gently allows us to let go of all of that so that God can meet us on God's own terms. And you're never going to get it right. That's not the point. When I was in high school, living in Minnesota, in my parents' driveway, shooting hoops, not particularly spiritual in any real way, not thinking about God, not praying, just shooting hoops. I sensed God say to me, this is going to sound so weird. Um, Hey, why don't you, why don't you do a dunk for me? And of course I had the rim lowered to about (laughs) eight feet. 
you know, but, and I believe in some mystical way that was God meeting me on God's own terms with kindness in the moment, surprising me with love. And so I did, I did a dunk. And again, Andrew, I wasn't thinking about God. I didn't have a particularly close relationship with God in high school. I really didn't. I didn't, I wasn't doing my, you know, quiet times or any of that stuff. And yet God met me on God's own terms and God said, do a dunk for me. And the reason why I believe that that maybe was God is that I would never have come up with that on my own. (laughs) I just, that would have never occurred to me. I wouldn't have even pretended that like that wouldn't anyway. So in, in contemplative prayer, when we set aside time and space to give our words a break and give silence a chance, um, we're going to be frustrated because it is going to feel like an hour when it's only five minutes. That's okay. Laugh at yourself when that happens. Like picture you're watching yourself as like a, a, like on a TV show that you love and you love this character that you're watching and you, and, and you love that this character is trying to pray for five minutes and you actually find it so delightful that he has such a hard time <laughs> practicing these five minutes. Like you don't judge him for that. You, you think it's great. Like you think he's human. You know, Mm -hmm. well, that's you like, imagine yourself doing that from that perspective. And I think you'll have a lot more grace, you know, for yourself. And, um, and again, the point of practicing silence like that meditation like that is that so that throughout the day, when you find yourself pulled away from the moment, um, you're not present with the person you're talking to. You're not present with your child. You're not present with your roommate. You're not present with the book that you're reading. You're not present with the email that you're typing. You're somewhere else. It's so that you can more quickly return to that moment because you've learned how to do that um, every time you your mind starts um, wandering during your contemplative prayer. <laughs>